more than conquerors, teaches our Lord Jesus Christ through his apostle. So we return to our study through Paul's letter to the Romans and to conclude this evening, chapter 8. But after several weeks away over Christmas and New Year, uh, perhaps it's helpful just to remind you why it is that some people regard this chapter as the single most important chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, you're completely free to disagree with that view, of course. But, well, we can kind of understand why some people might say that. They do so because of the way that Paul summarizes so much of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live as a Christian. The chapter begins by assuring the Christian that there is therefore now no condemnation. And it ends, as we'll see, we'll see this evening, by assuring us that it's impossible for the Christian ever to be separated from Christ and his love. No condemnation in Christ, no separation from Christ. In verses 1 to 4, Paul highlights for us this uh, wonderful truth of our union with Christ, new life in the Spirit who Christ sends. He is the Spirit of Christ himself and originating from the Father. All three persons of the Godhead intimately involved in the lives of his people in bringing us to salvation and keeping us throughout our Christian walk and then into eternity. And so the Christian now lives a new life according to a new nature, living according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who now dwells within you. And if you know nothing of this, then you are still as you were from the womb, born in sin with a sinful nature, a child of wrath under God's judgment and living according to your sinful flesh, your sinful nature. For the Christian, though you have now been set free from the power of sin, you've been set free from the dominion of sin, you have not yet been set free from the presence of sin, you have not yet been set free from the influence of sin. The day is coming when you will forever be in glory with Christ, when you will finally be free from the presence and the influence of any sin whatsoever, but not yet. And so each of us face this daily inner warfare as we go to battle against our old sinful nature. That's verses 5 through to 11. And then Paul deals with some of the key realities of living as a Christian in verses 12 through to 17. In your life, there is active sanctification taking place within you as one who now is an adopted child of God, one who now is an heir of an eternal inheritance in Christ. And so if these things are true of you, you cannot possibly stay the same. You cannot possibly carry on living as you once lived. And all of this puts you very much at odds with the sinful world in which you still live. And you can be certain of suffering as one who is united to Christ and united to him in his sufferings. 
But any suffering should always be seen as set against the unparalleled glory which is yet to come. Verses 17 to 25. And you have not been abandoned to your own devices. As we were reminded last week, you will never be left alone or forsaken. And that's the theme taken up by Paul from verse 26. The Holy Spirit who dwells within you is constantly helping you in your weaknesses. He intercedes with the Father on your behalf. And God really is working all things for good, those who belong to him. Verse 28. And your whole life, God is moving progressively along a certain and guaranteed path of salvation. Verses 29 and 30. And then in our last consideration of this chapter before our Christmas break, we looked at verses 31 to 34, where Paul asks certain questions, and he does so with the aim of quelling our fears. Because despite all of these things, you will still, from time to time, have certain doubts and fears. But if God is for you, who can be against you in the sense that who is there who can pose any kind of legitimate threat or danger against you who are in Christ and indwelt by his Spirit? God has already shown you the degree to which he is for you in the way that he sent his son into the world. He didn't spare even his son in order that you might be redeemed from all of your sins. His own son was sent by the Father that he might go to the cross. And that risen Christ now pleads on your behalf before his Father in heaven. He took your sins to the cross and now represents you in heaven and you and your salvation and your eternal inheritance could not be more safe and more secure. And now, as this chapter comes to its conclusion, by means of asking a few more questions, Paul drives home the believer's security in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next question Paul asks causes us to pause and consider a pivotal truth. The question, of course, is at verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? But the question causes us to consider a really key truth, which is this. Your faith and salvation spring from God's love for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is talking here about Christ's love for you. This is the love of God directed towards you that Paul is speaking about here. The question is not, what things might stop you from loving God? Why is that not the question? 
It's not the question because you're becoming a Christian believer and your continuing as a Christian believer does not depend upon your love for God or the strength of it. It depends upon God's love for you. Now, of course, His love for you has to result in you loving Him. But your love for Him is not what you rely upon. Your love for Him is not what keeps you and holds you. And that's good to know for those occasions when we have to admit our love really is not as it ought to be. But no, you see, it's God's love for you that keeps you and holds you. Consider this way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. What on earth has that dusty old book got to do with me, you might think? Let me tell you. Listen to what God says to the nation of Israel regarding their relationship to him. It's verses 6 and 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Wow. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that wonderful? Because the Lord loves loves you. And because he would keep the oath, the promise which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because he loved you. And then at verse 13 of the same chapter, he will love you and bless you. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. This is glorious. And when we get to chapter 9 of Romans, Paul will explain God's electing love for some, but not for others. He does it like this, going back into the Old Testament, when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older son shall serve the younger. 
course, it should have been the other way around, traditionally. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. Well, we'll examine that more fully when we get there. But notice the place of God's love toward Jacob. It's all of God's love toward us. And so what do we read when we get to the New Testament regarding our salvation? God so loved the world. He loved the world to this degree and he loved the world in this way. It was because of his love that your Saviour came into the world to save you. What did we read back in chapter 5 of Romans? God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is God's love for us that is at the heart of the gospel and continues to be through all your Christian walk. In Ephesians, in chapter 2, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. And then the Apostle John, in the first of his epistles, at the very end of the, of the New Testament, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. We love him because he first loved us. So the issue at stake here is crucial. Your entire salvation, all of the things that have been under consideration as we've been making our way through this whole letter and through chapter 8, they're all founded upon and they're all dependent upon God's love for you. The grace and the mercy that you have received are all wrapped up in and are the expression of God's everlasting love for you. Is there anything now or at any time in the future that can separate you from that love? That's the final question Paul brings in chapter 8. And really, with all that we've just considered, haven't we already answered the question? If God loves us like this, is God, no matter how far back in history we go, even before when history began, God loved us like this? Are we really in danger of falling outside of his love now? 
we might say that Paul has left the biggest question till last. But of course, being the masterful teacher and wordsmith that he is, he, he phrases his question in such a way that we can see at once it's not supposed to induce doubt or worry or fear in us. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's not intended to make us start quaking in our boots. Uh, Paul actually intends for us to say, well, Paul, of course, of course we see and understand what you're saying. What could possibly now separate us from this love? What power is there? What force is there? What circumstance is there that could, that could ever do such a thing? We are, of course, supposed to see as Christian people, that this question, it really can only have one answer. There is nothing that can separate you from God's love. And that's our second point. There is nothing that can now separate you from God's love. Now, from our side of this covenant relationship that we are in with God through Christ. From our side of things, things will sometimes feel a bit shaky. We are weak. We are changeable. We can be overcome by fears and anxieties. Our emotions can be up and down. We can be irritable. We can become frustrated. We can be stroppy. We can struggle with pride and self and ego. If the question was, what can keep you from being the Christian that you should be? Well, I guess all of us, if we were really honest, well, we'd need several pieces of paper to write down all the answers. Everything and anything seems to have the potential to knock me off course and cause me to wobble. But there is nothing that can now separate you from the love of Christ. And Paul makes it clear that the ongoing experience of God's love, that does not mean that all hardships from here on in will be eradicated or done away with. But rather in the light of verse 28, in the light of other passages of Scripture, like we read from uh, Peter's first letter at the start of the service, God is working all things for the good of His people, because you are the object of His love still. And these things which Paul will now list, actually, they will serve only to heighten our knowledge and our experience of Christ's love toward us. They will not threaten our knowledge of God's love. They can actually serve to increase our knowledge of God's love. And notice that Paul asks, who shall? In verse 35, who shall? Because it's nearly always people who lie behind these things which come against us. Tribulation. Any form of external trial or affliction or trouble. 
tribulation has always been known by God's people. You remember Paul, we've read it earlier in the chapter, speaking about present sufferings as a Christian. Now, the fact is that many of you who are Christians, many of you grew up for decades here in the UK knowing very little tribulation against the Lord's people in reality. Not like Christians in other parts of the world. Not like Christians in other generations. Many of you for decades knew very little tribulation because you were a Christian. For some, the worst possibly was just a little bit of name-calling, a little bit of teasing, but not really anything worse than that. But actually, if that was for many years your experience, that's not typical. It's not typical of most Christians. And we are discovering, as our society really begins to abandon God's Word, really begins to abandon God's truth. And as God gives people over to their sinful lusts and desires, just as Paul talks about in the opening two chapters of this letter, well, we're beginning to discover that tribulations are starting to increase against us. But this is nothing strange to the Lord's people. This is nothing new to the Lord's people. Uh, this is nothing uh, that we should in some way think that we don't deserve or that we have some kind of right to escape. Tribulation. Paul talks about it because he knows it's a reality for Christian people. But it will never separate you from the love of God. Distress. That's, that's the inward anxiety of heart that can come upon us in response to those tribulations. Can such distresses, when they come, separate you from God's love? Not in the slightest. Persecution. That opposition which comes directly and intentionally against you because you are a Christian. The animosity of this wicked world against the Lord and his people. The kind of opposition that actually took Christ to the cross for you. Will that in any way separate you from God's love? Not in the slightest. Famine and nakedness. For some Christians, in some circumstances, famine, nakedness, to be stripped of all resources, to be stripped of everything, to become a complete outcast from family, from friends, from your job, 
from the community in which you were born and lived. Everything stripped away. Famine and nakedness for some believers become the realities of tribulation and persecution. You and I, we haven't a clue about that. There are millions of believers who've known exactly what that meant. Will that separate me from knowing and experiencing Christ's love? No, it won't. It can't. Peril. All manner of situations in which your very life is in danger. Such as the eight perils which Paul mentions from his own experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And those perils, he mentions, are on top of all of the whippings and beatings and shipwrecks that he's experienced. Did he come through those things? Did he come out of those things knowing more or less of Christ's love for him? What was it that made him press on? What was it that kept him from saying those Lashes of the whip that I've just experienced. Never again. I'm going to do anything possible to avoid having to go through that again. Yet read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see how many times he was ready and willing to put himself through such treatment. Why? Because he knew more and more and more of Christ's love for him. The sword being put to death for the cause of Christ. Will that separate you? from his love. These Roman Christians that Paul's writing to, they will actually come to know these things in huge measure. All New Testament believers lived under the authority of Rome. And Rome was a place and Rome was a government of untold paganism, wickedness, Brutality, immorality of every sort. Let me tell you, the things that you see going on in society today, Rome was there first, and some. Not all Caesars were the same, but Nero, well, he would unleash unimaginable horrors against the church of Christ. And it's really interesting. Well, it is to me. 
despite living under such a regime as the New Testament believers did, you'll never find Paul engaging in political rantings about how awful Rome is, how Christians should rise up and protest and complain and fight for their rights. There is no such language from any of the apostles. There is no such language from Jesus, who lived under the Romans too. You see, the reality for every Christian in every age is that we live in a world which hates the things of God because it is an unsaved world. And it's a world of sinful fallenness and wickedness and which loves darkness rather than light. This world will always be pursuing those things which are unrighteous, unholy, and ungodly for as long as they are outside of Christ. Read again Romans 1 and 2. This world will always be marked out by selfish ambition, exploitation, deceit, self-serving, for this is the nature of the sinful heart. And these are the ways of Satan. All of mankind is like that. Read again the opening chapters of this letter if you need to. You were like that until you were visited by God's grace and until you suddenly realized one day that you were the object of God's love. And then everything changed. And it's in this tide of godlessness, it's always been in this tide of godlessness that Christians live and testify. It's always been this way. It's in this tide of godlessness that the Christian may thrive spiritually. And that's what you need to be focusing on. Not merely surviving as a Christian, thriving as a Christian, more than a conqueror. That's what Paul is talking about. Nothing can even remotely separate you from the love of Christ in this world. Not death. After all, what will death do? All death does is speed you on your way to heaven to be with him. How's that such a bad thing? How does that separate you from Christ's love? Actually, it takes you to the place of Christ's love. Not life, says Paul, will separate you. There'll be many things on the face of it which have the potential to cause you simply to react in anger and bitterness because God has allowed this thing to happen to someone like me. Why am I going through this? But for the Christian, well, the Christian can respond, well, the Christian can respond the way that people like Johnny Erickson Tarder has shown us a Christian can respond. A woman who now has lived for more than 50 years as a paraplegic, 
and who despite all of those ills that have come upon her can yet rejoice with joy unspeakable in what she has in Christ Jesus. You see, you really can not live just getting by, but as more than a conqueror, firm in Christ and in Christ's love, because there is nothing that can ever separate you from Christ's love. What about angels, principalities, powers? What about those things which are outside of ourselves and above ourselves and beyond ourselves? What about all the spiritual forces in this world? What about all the earthly authorities that are over us? Nothing. Nothing today. Nothing tomorrow. Nothing in this new year. Nothing in any new year will ever separate you from Christ's love. From the heights of heaven to the depths of hell, there is nothing that God has made that can separate you from him and his love for you. There is nothing that can keep you from living as a Christian ought to live. And Paul himself is an example of that. And it's interesting, isn't it? He, he was once the one doing the persecuting. <laughs> And doing it very effectively, we read in Acts 8 that he made havoc of the church. But even there, as they took Stephen's life from him, for him it wasn't the sword, that would have been far kinder. For him it was the agonizing death of being stoned. They could not separate him from Christ's love, could they? Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit and do not charge them with this sin. Assured of his Saviour and praying for grace and forgiveness for those who were hurling the stones at his head more than a conqueror. Because not even there, and not even then, could Stephen be separated from the love of his Saviour towards him. It's always been this way for the Lord's people. Verse 36 is a quotation from Psalm 44. For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Satan one day said to God, It's no wonder that Job loves and worships you as he does. You've given him the cushiest life ever. Who wouldn't say that they love and worship you with a life as easy and as prosperous as his? Who wouldn't think well of you when they've never had a day's hardship in their life? And from there begins Job's story. As God permits Satan to strip away just about everything 
that Job has. And all that Job is left with is an unhelpful wife. (laughs) Not that all wives are unhelpful, but his was on that occasion. And Job refuses to become bitter and twisted and to blame God. And yet, even with stories like that recorded in the Bible, how easily we can feel that if God really does love me, if God really does care for me, surely he would keep me from any, any such things as tribulations and distresses and, and persecutions. Why, why would this God of love and grace make me go through these things? And of course, the truth is there's no escape from all of the regular tribulations and distresses that fall upon everyone in this world, whether you're saved or whether you're not. And then on top of that, Christ's people undergoing still further hardships simply because they name Christ in the middle of this wicked world. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out into the world and you're going to be like sheep amongst wolves. And then Paul quotes this verse from Psalm 44. There are times when the lot for the Christian is extreme persecution and even death. Nero would bring the reality of that crushing down upon the Christian church. But such is not the cause for throwing up our arms in despair, dumbfounded that God could have got things so wrong by permitting such horrors to fall upon his people. Tribulation and distress do not mean that God has got it wrong. No, it's actually at the very midst of such things where faith is vindicated. It's in the midst of such things where God is proven true in the lives of his people. It's in the very midst of such things that the Christian may know like they've never known before Christ's love for them and testify of it. Such was Paul's testimony. These words that we find written down here in Romans, this isn't bold, unproven, ridiculous rhetoric. These are not exaggerated claims which simply sound too good to be true. This is Paul's experience and testimony. These are the realities of no longer living according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the reality of living a new life in Christ, whilst still surrounded by the bondage of corruption in this fallen world. This is the reality of nevertheless living that spirit-led life. Not merely as a just scraping by Christian, but as more than a conqueror in Christ. Making progress, moving forward, growing spiritually, knowing Christ better, experiencing his love and his grace more and more being made more bold in your own soul to speak his name and make him known, regardless of the cost. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Not just despite all the difficulties, but all the more because of them. That's what Peter is saying in the opening chapter of his first letter. But you see, once you are in Christ, 
you are in an unshakable and unmovable, immovable position and place. Because God, even before this world was made, loved you. And demonstrated his love by sending Christ into the world for you. And he loves you still. And he'll go on loving you. And your living as a Christian today does not depend upon how much love for God you can muster up in your heart for him. It all depends upon his unfailing love for you. Paul has proven this over and over in his life. And in verse 38, he says, I am persuaded. And he simply wants you to be persuaded too.